Book One, Section Thirty Five of On Duties by Cicero, translated by Walter Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. Thirty five. But the propriety to which I refer shows itself also in every deed, in every word, even in every movement and attitude of the body. And in outward visible propriety there are three elements, beauty, tact, and taste. These conceptions are difficult to express in words, but it will be enough for my purpose if they are understood. In these three elements is included also our concern for the good opinion of those with whom and amongst whom we live. For these reasons I should like to say a few words about this kind of propriety also. First of all, nature seems to have had a wonderful plan in the construction of our bodies. Our face and our figure generally, in so far as it has a comely appearance, she has placed in sight. But the parts of the body that are given us only to serve the needs of nature, and that would present an unsightly and unpleasant appearance, she has covered up and concealed from view. Man's modesty has followed this careful contrivance of nature's. All right-minded people keep out of sight what nature has hidden, and take pains to respond to nature's demands as privately as possible. And, in the case of those parts of the body which only serve nature's needs, neither the parts nor the functions are called by their real names. To perform these functions, if only it be done in private, is nothing immoral, but to speak of them is indecent. And so, neither public performance of those acts nor vulgar mention of them, is free from indecency. But we should give no heed to the cynics, or to some Stoics who are practically cynics, who censure and ridicule us for holding that the mere mention of some actions that are not immoral is shameful, while other things that are immoral we call by their real names. Robbery, fraud, and adultery, for example, are immoral indeed, but it is not indecent to name them. To beget children in wedlock is, indeed, morally right. To speak of it is indecent. And they assail modesty with a great many other arguments to the same purport. But, as for us, let us follow nature and shun everything that is offensive to our eyes or our ears. So, in standing or walking, in sitting or reclining, in our expression, our eyes, or the movements of our hands, let us preserve what we have called propriety. In these matters we must avoid especially the two extremes. Our conduct and speech should not be effeminate and over-nice on the one hand, nor coarse and boorish on the other. And we surely must not admit that while this rule applies to actors and orators, it is not binding upon us. As for stage people, their custom, because of its traditional discipline, carries modesty to such a point that an actor would never step out upon the stage without a breech-cloth on, for fear he might make an improper exhibition, if by some accident certain parts of his person should happen to become exposed. And in our own custom, grown sons do not bathe with their fathers, nor sons-in-law with their fathers-in-law. We must therefore keep to the path of this sort of modesty, especially when nature is our teacher and guide. 36. Again, there are two orders of beauty. In the one, loveliness predominates, 
in the other dignity of these we ought to regard loveliness as the attribute of woman and dignity as the attribute of man therefore let all finery not suitable to a man's dignity be kept off his person and let him guard against the like fault in gesture and action the manners taught in the palestra for example are often rather objectionable and the gestures of actors on the stage are not always free from affectation but simple unaffected manners are commendable in both instances now dignity of mien is also to be enhanced by a good complexion the complexion is the result of physical exercise we must besides present an appearance of neatness not too punctilious or exquisite but just enough to avoid boorish and ill-bred slovenliness we must follow the same principle in regard to dress in this as in most things the best rule is the golden mean we must be careful too not to fall into a habit of listless sauntering in our gait so as to look like carriers in festal processions or of hurrying too fast when time presses if we do this it puts us out of breath our looks are changed our features distorted and all this is clear evidence of a lack of poise but it is much more important that we succeed in keeping our mental operations in harmony with nature's laws and we shall not fail in this if we guard against violent excitement or depression and if we keep our minds intent on the observance of propriety our mental operations moreover are of two kinds some have to do with thought others with impulse thought is occupied chiefly with the discovery of truth impulse prompts to action we must be careful therefore to employ our thoughts on themes as elevating as possible and to keep our impulses under the control of reason thirty seven the power of speech in the attainment of propriety is great and its function is twofold the first is oratory the second conversation oratory is the kind of discourse to be employed in pleadings in court and speeches in popular assemblies and in the senate conversation should find its natural place in social gatherings in informal discussions and in intercourse with friends it should also seek admission at dinners there are rules for oratory laid down by rhetoricians there are none for conversation and yet i do not know why there should not be but where there are students to learn teachers are found there are however none who make conversation a subject of study whereas pupils throng about the rhetoricians everywhere and yet the same rules that we have for words and sentences in rhetoric will apply also to conversation now since we have the voice as the organ of speech we should aim to secure two properties for it that it be clear and that it be musical we must of course look to nature for both gifts but distinctness may be improved by practice the musical qualities by imitating those who speak with smooth and articulate enunciation there is nothing in the two catuli to lead one to suppose that they had a refined literary taste they were men of culture it is true and so were others but the catuli were looked upon as the perfect masters of the latin tongue their pronunciation was charming their words were neither mouthed nor mumbled they avoided both indistinctness and affectation their voices were free from strain 
yet neither faint nor shrill more copious was the speech of lucius crassus and not less brilliant but the reputation of the two catuli for eloquence was fully equal to his but in wit and humour caesar the elder catulus's half-brother surpassed them all even at the bar he would with his conversational style defeat other advocates with their elaborate orations if therefore we are aiming to secure propriety in every circumstance of life we must master all these points conversation then in which the socratics are the best models should have these qualities it should be easy and not in the least dogmatic it should have the spice of wit and the one who engages in conversation should not debar others from participating in it as if he were entering upon a private monopoly but as in other things so in a general conversation he should think it not unfair for each to have his turn he should observe first and foremost what the subject of conversation is if it is grave he should treat it with seriousness if humorous with wit and above all he should be on the watch that his conversation shall not betray some defect in his character this is most likely to occur when people in jest or in earnest take delight in making malicious and slanderous statements about the absent on purpose to injure their reputations the subjects of conversation are usually affairs of the home or politics or the practice of the professions and learning accordingly if the talk begins to drift off to other channels pains should be taken to bring it back again to the matter in hand but with due consideration to the company present for we are not all interested in the same things at all times or in the same degree we must observe too how far the conversation is agreeable and as it had a reason for its beginning so there should be a point at which to close it tactfully thirty eight but as we have a most excellent rule for every phase of life to avoid exhibitions of passion that is mental excitement that is excessive and uncontrolled by reason so our conversation ought to be free from such emotions let there be no exhibition of anger or inordinate desire of indolence or indifference or anything of the kind we must also take the greatest care to show courtesy and consideration towards those with whom we converse it may sometimes happen that there is need of administering reproof on such occasions we should perhaps use a more emphatic tone of voice and more forcible and severe terms and even assume an appearance of being angry but we shall have recourse to this sort of reproof as we do to cautery and amputation rarely and reluctantly never at all unless it is unavoidable and no other remedy can be discovered we may seem angry but anger should be far from us for in anger nothing right or judicious can be done in most cases we may apply a mild reproof so combined however with earnestness that while severity is shown offensive language is avoided nay more we must show clearly that even that very harshness which goes with our reproof is designed for the good of the person reproved the right course moreover even in our differences with our bitterest enemies is to maintain our dignity and to repress our anger even though we are treated outrageously for what is done under some degree of excitement cannot be done with perfect self-respect or the approval of those who witness it 
it is bad taste also to talk about oneself especially if what one says is not true and amid the derision of one's hearers to play the braggart captain thirty nine but since i am investigating this subject in all its phases at least that is my purpose i must discuss also what sort of house a man of rank and station should in my opinion have its prime object is serviceableness to this the plan of the building should be adapted and yet careful attention should be paid to its convenience and distinction we have heard that gnaeus octavius the first of that family to be elected consul distinguished himself by building upon the palatine an attractive and imposing house everybody went to see it and it was thought to have gained votes for the owner a new man in his canvas for the consulship that house scaurus demolished and on its site he built an addition to his own house octavius then was the first of his family to bring the honour of a consulship to his house scaurus though the son of a very great and illustrious man brought to the same house when enlarged not only defeat but disgrace and ruin the truth is a man's dignity may be enhanced by the house he lives in but not wholly secured by it the owner should bring honour to his house not the house to its owner and as in everything else a man must have regard not for himself alone but for others also so in the home of a distinguished man in which numerous guests must be entertained and crowds of every sort of people received care must be taken to have it spacious but if it is not frequented by visitors if it has an air of lonesomeness a spacious palace often becomes a discredit to its owner this is sure to be the case if at some other time when it had a different owner it used to be thronged for it is unpleasant when passers-by remark oh good old house alas how different the owner who now owneth thee and in these times that may be said of many a house one must be careful too not to go beyond proper bounds in expense and display especially if one is building for oneself for much mischief is done in this way if only in the example set for many people imitate zealously the foibles of the great particularly in this direction for example who copies the virtues of lucius lucullus excellent man that he was but how many there are who have copied the magnificence of his villas some limit should surely be set to this tendency and it should be reduced at least to a standard of moderation and by that same standard of moderation the comforts and wants of life generally should be regulated but enough on this part of my theme in entering upon any course of action then we must hold fast to three principles first that impulse shall obey reason for there is no better way than this to secure the observance of duties second that we estimate carefully the importance of the object that we wish to accomplish so that neither more nor less care and attention may be expended upon it than the case requires the third principle is that we be careful to observe moderation in all that is essential to the outward appearance and dignity of a gentleman moreover the best rule for securing this is strictly to observe that propriety which we have discussed above and not to overstep it yet of these three principles 
the one of prime importance is to keep impulse subservient to reason. 40. Next, then, we must discuss orderliness of conduct and seasonableness of occasions. These two qualities are embraced in that science which the Greeks call eutaxia, not that eutaxia which we translate with moderation, modestia, derived from moderate, but this is the eutaxia by which we understand orderly conduct, and so, if we may call it also moderation, it is defined by the Stoics as follows. Moderation is the science of disposing aright everything that is done or said. So, the essence of orderliness and of right placing, it seems, will be the same. For orderliness they define also as the arrangement of things in their suitable and appropriate places. By place of action, moreover, they mean seasonableness of circumstance, and the seasonable circumstance for an action is called in Greek eukaidia, in Latin occasio, occasion. So it comes about that in this sense moderation, which we explain, as I have indicated, is the science of doing the right thing at the right time. A similar definition can be given for prudence, of which I have spoken in an early chapter. But in this part we are considering temperance and self-control and related virtues. Accordingly, the properties which, as we found, are peculiar to prudence, were discussed in their proper place, while those are to be discussed now which are peculiar to these virtues of which we have for some time been speaking, and which relate to considerateness and to the approbation of our fellow-men. Such orderliness of conduct is therefore to be observed, that everything in the conduct of our life shall balance and harmonize, as in a finished speech, for it is unbecoming and highly censurable when upon a serious theme to introduce such jests as are proper at a dinner or any sort of loose talk. When Pericles was associated with the poet Sophocles as his colleague in command, and they had met to confer about official business that concerns them both, a handsome boy chanced to pass, and Sophocles said, Look, Pericles, what a pretty boy! How pertinent was Pericles's reply! Hush, Sophocles, a general should keep not only his hands, but his eyes under control. And yet, if Sophocles had made this same remark at a trial of athletes, he would have incurred no just reprimand. So great is the significance of both place and circumstance. For example, if any one, while on a journey or on a walk, should rehearse to himself a case which he is preparing to conduct in court, or if he should, under similar circumstances, apply his closest thought to some other subject, he would not be open to censure. But if he should do that same thing at a dinner, he would be thought ill-bred, because he ignored the proprieties of the occasion. But flagrant breaches of good breeding, like singing in the streets or any other gross misconduct, are easily apparent and do not call especially for admonition and instruction. But we must even more carefully avoid those seemingly trivial faults which pass unnoticed by the many. However slightly out of tune a harp or flute may be, the fault is still detected by a connoisseur so we must be on the watch, lest haply something in our life be out of tune. Nay, rather, far greater is the need for painstaking 
inasmuch as harmony of actions is far better and far more important than harmony of sounds. 41. As, therefore, a musical ear detects even the slightest falsity of tone in a harp, so we, if we wish to be keen and careful observers of moral faults, shall often draw important conclusions from trifles. We observe others, and from a glance of the eyes, from a contracting or relaxing of the brows, from an air of sadness, from an outburst of joy, from a laugh, from speech, from silence, from a raising or lowering of the voice, and the like, we shall easily judge which of our actions is proper, and which is out of accord with duty and nature. And, in the same manner, it is not a bad plan to judge of the nature of every action by studying others, that so we may ourselves avoid anything that is unbecoming in them. For it happens somehow or other that we detect another's failings more readily than we do our own. And so in the schoolroom those pupils learn most easily to do better whose faults the masters mimic for the sake of correcting them. Nor is it out of place in making a choice between duties involving a doubt to consult men of learning or practical wisdom, and to ascertain what their views are on any particular question of duty. For the majority usually drift as the current of their own natural inclinations carries them, and in deriving counsel from one of these we have to see not only what our adviser says, but also what he thinks, and what his reasons are for thinking as he does. For as painters and sculptors, and even poets too, wish to have their works reviewed by the public, in order that, if any point is generally criticized, it may be improved, and as they try to discover both by themselves, and with the help of others, what is wrong in their work, so, through consulting the judgment of others, we find that there are many things to be done and left undone, to be altered and improved. But no rules need to be given about what is done in accordance with the established customs and conventions of a community, for these are in themselves rules, and no one ought to make the mistake of supposing that, because Socrates or Aristippus did or said something contrary to the manners and established customs of their city, he has a right to do the same. It was only by reason of their great and superhuman virtues that those famous men acquired this special privilege. But the cynic's whole system of philosophy must be rejected, for it is inimical to moral sensibility, and without moral sensibility nothing can be upright, nothing morally good. It is, furthermore, our duty to honour and reverence those whose lives are conspicuous for conduct in keeping with their high moral standards, and who, as true patriots, have rendered, or are now rendering, efficient service to their country, just as much as if they were invested with some civil or military authority. It is our duty also to show proper respect to old age, to yield precedence to magistrates, to make a distinction between a fellow-citizen and a foreigner, and, in the case of the foreigner himself, to discriminate according to whether he has come in an official or a private capacity. In a word, not to go into details, it is our duty to respect, defend, and maintain the common bonds of union and fellowship subsisting between all the members of the human race. 42. Now, in regard to trades and other means of livelihood, which ones are to be considered becoming to a gentleman, and which ones are vulgar, 
we have been taught in general as follows first those means of livelihood are rejected as undesirable which incur people's ill-will as those of tax-gatherers and usurers unbecoming to a gentleman too and vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen whom we pay for mere manual labour not for artistic skill for in their case the very wages they receive is a pledge of their slavery vulgar we must consider those also who buy from wholesale merchants to retail immediately for they would get no profits without a great deal of downright lying and verily there is no action that is meaner than misrepresentation and all mechanics are engaged in vulgar trades for no workshop can have anything liberal about it least respectable of all are those trades which cater to sensual pleasures fishmongers butchers cooks and poulterers and fishermen as terence says add to these if you please the perfumers dancers and the whole corps de ballet but the professions in which either a higher degree of intelligence is required or from which no small benefit to society is derived medicine and architecture for example and teaching these are proper for those whose social position they become trade if it is on a small scale is to be considered vulgar but if wholesale and on a large scale importing large quantities from all parts of the world and distributing to many without misrepresentation it is not to be greatly disparaged nay it even seems to deserve the highest respect if those who are engaged in it satiated or rather i should say satisfied with the fortunes they have made make their way from the port to a country estate as they have often made it from the sea into port but of all the occupations by which gain is secured none is better than agriculture none more profitable none more delightful none more becoming to a free man but since i have discussed this quite fully in my cato major you will find there the material that applies to this point forty three now i think i have explained fully enough how moral duties are derived from the four divisions of moral rectitude but between those very actions which are morally right a conflict and comparison may frequently arise as to which of two moral actions is morally better a point overlooked by panetius for since all moral rectitude springs from four sources one of which is prudence the second social instinct the third courage the fourth temperance it is often necessary in deciding a question of duty that these virtues be weighed against one another my view therefore is that those duties are closer to nature which depend upon the social instinct than those which depend upon knowledge and this view can be confirmed by the following argument one suppose that a wise man should be vouchsafed such a life that with an abundance of everything pouring in upon him he might in perfect peace study and ponder over everything that is worth knowing still if the solitude were so complete that he could never see a human being he would die and then the foremost of all virtues is wisdom what the greeks call sophia for by prudence which they call phronesis we understand something else namely the practical knowledge of things to be sought for and of things to be avoided two again 
that wisdom which i have given the foremost place is the knowledge of things human and divine which is concerned also with the bonds of union between gods and men and the relations of man to man if wisdom is the most important of the virtues as it certainly is it necessarily follows that that duty which is connected with the social obligation is the most important duty and three service is better than mere theoretical knowledge for the study and knowledge of the universe would somehow be lame and defective were no practical results to follow such results moreover are best seen in the safeguarding of human interests it is essential then to human society and it should therefore be ranked above speculative knowledge upon this all the best men agree as they prove by their conduct for who is so absorbed in the investigation and study of creation but that even though he were working and pondering over tasks never so much worth mastering and even though he thought he could number the stars and measure the length and breadth of the universe he would drop all those problems and cast them aside if word were suddenly brought to him of some critical peril to his country which he could relieve or repel and he would do the same to further the interests of parent or friend or to save him from danger from all this we conclude that the duties prescribed by justice must be given precedence over the pursuit of knowledge and the duties imposed by it for the former concern the welfare of our fellow-men and nothing ought to be more sacred in men's eyes than that forty four and yet scholars whose whole life and interests have been devoted to the pursuit of knowledge have not after all failed to contribute to the advantages and blessings of mankind for they have trained many to be better citizens and to render larger service to their country so for example the pythagorean lysis taught epaminondas of thebes plato dion of syracuse and many many others as for me myself whatever service i have rendered to my country if indeed i have rendered any i came to my task trained and equipped for it by my teachers and what they taught me and not only while present in the flesh do they teach and train those who are desirous of learning but by the written memorials of their learning they continue the same service after they are dead for they have overlooked no point that has a bearing upon laws customs or political science in fact they seem to have devoted their retirement to the benefit of us who are engaged in public business the principal thing done therefore by those very devotees of the pursuits of learning and science is to apply their own practical wisdom and insight to the service of humanity and for that reason also much speaking if only it contained wisdom is better than speculation never so profound without speech for mere speculation is self-centred while speech extends its benefits to those with whom we are united by the bonds of society and again as swarms of bees do not gather for the sake of making honeycomb but make the honeycomb because they are gregarious by nature so human beings and to a much higher degree exercise their skill together in action and thought because they are naturally gregarious and so if that virtue justice which centres in the safeguarding of human interests that is in the maintenance of human society were not to accompany the pursuit of knowledge that knowledge 
would seem isolated and barren of results. In the same way, courage, fortitude, if unrestrained by the uniting bonds of society, would be but a sort of brutality and savagery. Hence it follows that the claims of human society and the bonds that unite men together take precedence of the pursuit of speculative knowledge. And it is not true, as certain people maintain, that the bonds of union in human society were instituted in order to provide for the needs of daily life. For, they say, without the aid of others we could not secure for ourselves or supply to others the things that nature requires. But if all that is essential to our wants and comfort were supplied by some magic wand, as in the stories, then every man of first-rate ability could drop all other responsibility and devote himself exclusively to learning and study. Not at all, for he would seek to escape from his loneliness and to find some one to share his studies. He would wish to teach as well as to learn, to hear as well as to speak. Every duty, therefore, that tends effectively to maintain and safeguard human society should be given the preference over that duty which arises from speculation and science alone. 45. The following question should perhaps be asked, whether this social instinct, which is the deepest feeling in our nature, is always to have precedence over temperance and moderation also? I think not, for there are some acts either so repulsive or so wicked that a wise man would not commit them even to save his country. Poseidonius has made a large collection of them, but some of them are so shocking, so indecent, that it seems immoral even to mention them. The wise man, therefore, will not think of doing any such thing for the sake of his country. No more will his country consent to have it done for her. But the problem is the more easily disposed of because the occasion cannot arise when it could be to the state's interest to have the wise man do any of those things. This, then, may be regarded as settled. In choosing between conflicting duties, that class takes precedence which is demanded by the interests of human society. And this is the natural sequence, for discreet action will presuppose learning and practical wisdom. It follows, therefore, that discreet action is of more value than wise, but inactive speculation. So much must suffice for this topic, for in its essence it has been made so clear that in determining a question of duty it is not difficult to see which duty is to be preferred to any other. Moreover, even in the social relations themselves there are gradations of duty so well defined that it can easily be seen which duty takes precedence of any other. Our first duty is to the immortal gods, our second to country, our third to parents, and so on, in a descending scale to the rest. From this brief discussion, then, it can be understood that people are often in doubt not only whether an action is morally right or wrong, but also when a choice is offered between two moral actions, which one is morally better. This point, as I remarked above, has been overlooked by Panetius. But let us now pass on to what remains. End of Book One Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards